Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. Verizon says it's 9:30. I hear music. I don't know where it's coming from. It's in the lobby. There's music in the lobby. There's music. In, yeah, Steve, if you just close. It sounds very heavenly. <laughs> yeah, it does sound. That's why I look to see if it's some of my music that I play. <laughs> but it sounds like coming through this system. That's why I just looked. That's what I that's the first thing I checked. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, I, I Yes, go get Chris. That's what I'm getting ready to call. Cause it I hear it coming through the system here. Yeah, it's not me. At least it's, at least it's nice music. I like the music. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it kind of it sounds like the kind of music I would be listening to, but it's... Yeah, my mic has nothing to do with it. We might just, we might, we might just end up with some Narnia music in the background. Um, in case they can't find Chris, let me text them. Take a week off and they just forget all about me. <laughs> yeah, I'm texting them. <laughs> now, that's better than elevator music. I don't like elevator music. That sounds ethereal. I, I like that music. That's. Anyway, I'll do announcements while they're taking care of the music situation. Thank you for those of you that studied with us last week in adult VBS. Um, you may not have known what you were doing or what we were doing, but we were looking at postmodern objections to, to things like the virgin birth, um, heaven, hell, uh, Christian concept of marriage, um, resurrection of the body. So thank you. The music went away, Chris. Oh, I didn't do anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody did it over there, evidently. Uh, probably. Good. It went away. I was about to get to the point where we were enjoying it. Um, anyway, we were looking at postmodern. Um, didn't use that word a lot, but we, we were looking at postmodern philosophical, which is the world we are inhabiting, 
and what you're fighting against as Christians every day of every week is postmodern uh, philosophy and thought and the way of doing the universe around you. And Christianity is diametrically opposed to the postmodern theology and philosophy and um, way of doing life that has engulfed Western civilization. So uh, sort of what we were doing, we were looking at uh, objections to virgin birth, resurrection of the body, Christian concept of marriage, heaven, hell. But um, we were kind of looking at objections to those, particularly in this culture, um, from the postmodernism that is constantly attacking a Christian worldview. We were talking actually about what it means to hold a Christian worldview and to do Christian decision-making rather than decision-making uh, based totally on our uh, influencing by Hollywood and Madison Avenue. So uh, anyway, thank you for those that uh, uh, studied with us last, last week. Uh, one other uh, shameless commercial, if you're interested. Uh, I did talk to you one other time about the C.S. Lewis Society of the Triad. Uh, we meet normally uh, once a month, September to June, uh, in the living room at River Landing. Uh, we meet on the first Thursday of the month, because of course C.S. Lewis's group, the Inklings, met on Thursdays. Uh, we meet on the first Thursday of the month at 7 o'clock to about 8, 8.15. Uh, contact me and I can give you the reading list for the year. We, um, our mission statement is just to um, um, learn and prom- propagate uh, the, the thought, uh, the life and thought of C.S. Lewis. So we look at writings by C.S. Lewis, about C.S. Lewis, that influence C.S. Lewis, or even from the circle of C.S. Lewis's friends, uh, such as J.R.R. Tolkien. So um, we do a reading list each year. The reading list this coming year is a little heavy on biographies of C.S. Lewis, because there's a new one coming out uh, that has recently come out. Uh, every year we read a few, we reread a few classics and we read some new stuff. Uh, but if you're interested in that um, reading list, just see me. We'd love to have you come and be part of our conversation. Uh, we're mostly laity. A few clergy come and go in that group. Um, we do meet normally the first Thursday of the month from September to June. This year, because I'm going to be out of the country the first Thursday of September, so we're going to start the year off in this room on August the 25th uh, with a um, very um, general discussion of mere Christianity and um, and have that general discussion of mere Christianity in addition uh, to enjoying, <clears throat> excuse me, enjoying a um, a really, really nice prime rib dinner. Uh, and uh, I can get you that prime rib dinner for 10 bucks because um, we're a nonprofit here at Weston Memorial. I can get you that prime rib dinner for $10. But if you're interested, just uh, text me or email me and I can give you details about that August 25th meeting. That's a Thursday night too. Uh, and I can give you details about the group and um, give you our reading list uh, if you've gotten excited about C.S. Lewis and some of the thought. I do think, a lot of us think uh, firmly, he was the greatest Christian apologist defender of the faith in the 20th century. Uh, He lived from 1898 to 1963. Uh, So, and his his writings are more popular now than they were when he died, Um, particularly in the United States, particularly in the United States. So there's my two shameless commercials. Uh, but welcome. So we're wrapping up 
the line, the witch, and the wardrobe today as we make our journey back to Narnia. It's appropriate little kids are walking by as we make our journey back to Narnia. I hope they will learn about Narnia in the near future. By the way, my second granddaughter was born. Uh, was born, um, thank you. Um, I'm curious to learn her personality because she was born, she showed up at 5.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Um, yeah, I've talked to her about her scheduling, her sense of scheduling. But um, uh, she's doing well. Came home from the hospital yesterday. Uh, so the first granddaughter, June the 24th. The second granddaughter, July the 24th. So uh, they are, they're one month apart. So our, our family has changed dramatically in the last month. I'm still processing what all this means um, for our family. But uh, anyway, um, we are finishing up the magician, we're finishing up the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. Remember your schedule, that means we go to the first three chapters of the magician's nephew uh, next, next week. And then we'll do the magician's nephew a little quicker than we did uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe is the most famous, most popular of the Chronicles. Again, magician's nephew, which you should not read first for obvious reasons, uh, the magician's nephew is the prequel um, that will show you where this wonderful world came from. You'll 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 find it interesting now that you know the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. But we will get into Magician's Nephew next week. So today, the last two chapters of the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. So look at chapter 16, and then we'll go to chapter 17 and wrap up. Uh, You notice that um, the chapter is entitled "What Happened About the Statues." Aslan has died. Aslan has come back. Uh, when Aslan comes back, he takes Lucy and uh, Susan on that uh, flight to the to the to the witch's castle, and that's where the story picks up. If you'll notice at the very first paragraph of chapter 16, uh, they are they are I guess landing in the witch's castle. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All those stone animals and people, too. It's, it's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan is doing something. Uh, what, I, what I hope that you notice here, I think C.S. Lewis probably hopes you notice, is compare this trip to the witch's castle uh, to the earlier trip to the witch's castle that Edmund took. Remember when, when Edmund took the trip to the witch's castle and he saw all of the uh, creatures that had been turned to stone? It was a very dark, foreboding place that created a lot of fear in Edmund. Well, things have changed in Narnia. You know, it's not always winter now, never Christmas. Things have changed. The, the winter has melted. Aslan has died specifically for Edmund and came back. Uh, He has defeated the magic of the white witch with the deeper magic of the emperor beyond the sea. Um, So now they're going back to the witch's castle. This is the first thing he does after he he comes comes back to life. He goes to the witch's castle. You notice um, Lucy's not afraid. 
It's not full, full of fear. What an extraordinary place is what she says. All these stone animals, it looks like a museum. And Aslan does start doing something. I'm sure that when you read this, uh, if you've been in the Christian faith for a while, I'm sure that when you read this chapter, with Aslan breathing on those stone statues and they came to life, I, I hope you were calling to mind John chapter 20, how after the resurrection... Um, Jesus met with his disciples post-resurrection, and he breathed on them, gave them peace, was beginning to prepare them for their new life in a new world. And that's what you find Aslan doing here. He's, he's, he's um, almost frenetically running around breathing on these stone statues. And, of course, you see what happens. That turns them back into living creatures. Uh, that may also recall in your biblical mind something like Ezekiel 37 where the prophet said that um, uh, God will breathe on you and he will exchange your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. So you got a lot of biblical imagery behind what you see Aslan doing here as he's breathing on the stone creatures there in the, in the witch's palace. Um, and then you see on page 170, you, you see some of those stone creatures who have come, come to life. Uh, you, you learn things in this chapter like um, giant, giants are not real clever. You learn some things in this chapter like, uh, it's all, there's parenthetically, you learn that, that um, the narrator tells you giants are rare these days in England. Um, anyway, you see all these people coming alive, coming to life. And that's pretty much uh, chapter. That's, that's pretty much chapter um, chap, chapter 16. They make their way back and they arrive at the battle that's going on. Uh, they arrive at the battle. The battle is the end of chapter 16, beginning of chapter 17. They arrive at the battle, and um, you'll notice that uh, Aslan enters the conflict. Uh, on top of page 177, which you've got Pauline Baines's sketching at the bottom of 177, a, 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 a sketch of the battle. Uh, you see at the top of page 177, it says, Then with a roar that shook all Narnia, from the western lamppost, which you know about, and you're going to find its origins in the magician's nephew, uh, from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. So you know the white witch is going to lose. And the battle quickly comes to an end. Even though, even though there has been some school districts, not many, most school districts, public school districts, just ignore the Chronicles of Narnia, but there have been some school districts who have um, banned the Chronicles of Narnia because of this violence. And, um, which I, again, we've spoken about that several times. C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, um, G.K. Chesterton, all of that crew said, you know, let, let's not completely sanitize everything we say to our children. Uh, let's prepare them for the real world. Let's prepare them to understand that life is a conflict between good and evil. Uh, so prepare them for that, but tell them good wins. Help them see the good. Help them to be able to pick out the good in the midst of the evil. Uh, but even though this has 
been banned in a few places uh, because of the violence. You'll notice, really, he's, he's pretty limited in the way he talks about the, the battle. He doesn't paint all the gory details. Uh, you, you see some of it, and you, you get a little of it at the end of, of this chapter and the beginning of chapter 17. Uh, look at the beginning of chapter 17. And by the way, this is good theology, too. Uh, if you look at the beginning of chapter 17, it says the battle was all over a few minutes after their arrival. Yeah, after Aslan shows up, it doesn't take a lot of battle for him to um, win the victory. Um, by the way, I point this out when I teach the book of Revelation. If you look at the battle of Armageddon in Revelation, um, the battle of Armageddon is referenced. It's not really described very much because God doesn't have to do a lot to defeat the enemy when he has that final defeat of the enemies. You kind of get echoes of that here with Aslan. It doesn't take a lot for the um, for Aslan to defeat the white witch and her horde. So it says the battle was all over in a few minutes after their arrival. Most of the enemy had been killed in the first charge of Aslan and his companions, and when those who were still living saw that the white witch, that the witch was dead, they either gave themselves up or took to flight. The next thing, watch this, the next thing that Lucy knew was that Peter and Aslan were shaking hands. It was strange to her to see Peter looking as he looked now. His face was so pale and stern, and he seemed so much older. Only a day has passed, right, since they last saw Peter. But some significant things have happened, including this battle. So, yeah, life will do this to you. The conflict, the spiritual warfare of life, the conflict of life will will, will age you, will help you mature. But I want you to notice... um, because what I want you to see, one of the things I want you to see in this last chapter uh, entitled The Hunting of the White Stag is uh, how particularly Edmund has changed. But even Peter, notice what Peter says here at the beginning in the next paragraph uh, as the battle's over. It was all Edmund's doing, Aslan, Peter was saying. So you see reconciliation, you see restoration. Uh, I'd still be mad at Edmund myself. Power Peter. But uh, you see Peter giving credit to Edmund. And, and Edmund, you'll learn, did a, a, a very uh, did, did a lot of very courageous fighting in this final battle. Um, I, I, I run a lot of I run across some people, and I'm sure you do too in the Christian faith, who have a really hard time giving anybody else credit for anything. Uh, they prefer to take it all into themselves. But here you see Peter, he, uh, Peter he's maturing uh, rather rapidly, and he, he said it was all Edmund's, it was all Edmund's doing, Aslan. Uh, so, um, yeah, and you, you hear how Edmund, um, you know, fought valiantly, how Edmund um, broke the witch's wand, and that's really what kind of helped the battle to come to an end. Uh, you also see how uh, Edmund is wounded, uh, on the next page, they found Edmund in charge of Mrs. Beaver. We like Mrs. Beaver. In charge of Mrs. Beaver, a, a little way back from the fighting line, he was covered with blood. His mouth was open, his face a nasty green color. 
Quick, Lucy, said Aslan. And then almost for the first time, Lucy remembered the precious cordial that had been given to her for Christmas, Christmas present. Remember Father Christmas? Her hands trembled so much that she could hardly undo the stopper, but she managed it in, in the end and poured a few drops into her brother's mouth. Now, I really want you to watch this exchange between Aslan and Lucy at this point. So uh, Lucy is using that magical cordial to heal Edmund. Um, but Aslan, as she's healing Edmund, Aslan says to her, there are other people wounded, said Aslan, while she was still looking eagerly into Edmund's pale face and wondering if the cordial would have any result. Yes, I know, said Lucy crossly. Need to be careful when you get cross with Aslan. Yes, I know, said Lucy crossly. Wait a minute. Daughter of Eve, said Aslan in a graver voice. Others are also at the point of death. Must more people die for Edmund? I'm sorry, Aslan, said Lucy, getting up and going with him. And for the next half hour, they were busy. She attended to the wounding wounded while he restored those who had been turned into stone. Um, yeah, sometimes we don't want to do what Aslan tells us to do. Sometimes we may be so focused on our friends, on our inner circle, on our family, that uh, Aslan can't push us away to serve others. And, um, you know, understandably, Lucy's focused on Edmund, and the healing of Edmund right here. But Aslan says there's other people wounded too, Lucy. I should, well, the other people have to die for Edmund because he's died for Edmund. Um, came back to life, he died for Edmund. And she um, realizes he's right. So she goes and uh, attends to the others. Now, obviously, Aslan could have simply, easily, taking care of all the other wounded, right? But throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the things you see about Aslan and the people Aslan's encountering, uh, this is a very New Testament. Remember Paul saying we are co-laborers with Christ? Yeah, Christ could do it all himself. He could bring the kingdom completely on his own. He could spread the gospel completely on his own. Um, he could use angels to do it, but uh, he chooses to use us. Um, we're instruments. We're means of grace. We are called into service. Uh, you see that throughout the Chronicles. Um, here Aslan is sharing the healing of all the other soldiers with Lucy. Um, yeah, an important spiritual lesson there. Um, you know, don't one of, one of the things that Christians, particularly in this age, need to struggle against is a spirit of passivity. Let go, let God, let others, while I go and chill out. Well, you know, there's some truth in all of that. We we depend upon God. We trust God. God can do it without us, obviously. But God has called us into service. God has redeemed us, cleansed us, filled us with his spirit for a purpose. So, yeah, we can't just chill out and say, let go, let God, let others take care of it. Uh, part of 
part of our glory, part of our glory is um, we get to participate uh, with, with the work of Christ in the world. Uh, one of the quotations that comes to my mind often, uh, particularly as I'm reading um, passages such as this here in, in the Bible and in Christian theology, is a simple statement from Leo the Great, an early pope in the Christian movement, who said, recognize, old Christian, your dignity. You need to know who you are in Christ, what you're called to do. You need to know what your purpose in life is. That purpose doesn't fade away. There's no retirement in the Bible. You just reinvent yourself into a different way of being in service. Yeah, you can't just let go, let God chill out, and let everybody else take care of it. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no retirement in the Bible. We just morph into different ways of being um, instrument of Christ's work here in the world. And that's our dignity. That's our dignity. Um, yeah, Lucy would rather have stayed there caring for her brother Edmund, but Aslan called her further into further service. Um, turn the page, 180. I really want you to pay close attention this last chapter. Beginning at the top of page 180. Uh, at the bottom of 180, by the way, is a sketching by Pauline Baines of, of Care Paravel the castle from which the four uh, kids will rule. But look at, look, at the, look at the top of the page. When at last she was free to come back to Edmund, she found him standing on his feet and not only healed of his wounds, but looking better than she had seen him look. Oh, for ages, in fact, ever since his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong, Again, we've mentioned several times C.S. Lewis had a traumatic experience in schools uh, growing up in England. If you read his autobiography up to the point of his conversion, his autobiography entitled A Surprise by Joy, uh, he, he kind of quickly talks about uh, and briefly talks about World War One and his involvement, but he goes for pages and pages and pages telling you about those horrible schools he was sent away to as he was growing up. Uh, so you, you, you kind of see C.S. Lewis's um, frustration with what he called modern education. And again, he wrote this book at the end of 19, in, in 1949, it was published around the early 50s, 1950. So yeah, he was frustrated with public modern education at that point, because he had kind of grown up at, in it in the, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and uh, didn't think much of it. He never warmed up to it in the rest of his life. And you're going to actually see how this book ends in a minute with another slight, um, overt slight at modern, modern education. But anyway, uh, Edmund began to go wrong at that hard school. But he's looking differently now. There's a different Edmund now. Uh, you, you have watched, using a Christian term, you've watched the sanctification of Edmund. From the beginning of this book to now, you've watched him go from a horrible human being, falling under the spell of the, the white witch, falling in love with a Turkish delight more than he loved his siblings, uh, wanting to serve the white witch. You, you've seen him go from traitor to this um, because of Aslan, 
because of his experience. So what you've seen is the sanctification. That's a term you should know. That's the word sanctification comes from the word sanctity, which comes from the word um, in the Greek to be made holy. So sanctification is the holization of you, the making holy of you through the work of the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. You see that here. You see Edmund on a journey here. I hope you know a lot about that journey and you're on that journey. Uh, you see how Edmund has changed dramatically. Yeah, he's not he's not that horrid kid at the beginning of the book. He's not that horrid child that became horrid when he was in school. Um, he had become his real old self again and could look you in the face. And there on the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. Yeah, this process of sanctification. Yeah, uh, you need to be always evaluating yourself where you're at in the process of sanctification. Now, notice this next exchange between Lucy and Susan. Um, does he know? Because they're 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 amazed at the change in Edmund. Does he know? Whispered Lucy to Susan, what Aslan did for him. Does he know what the arrangement with the witch really was? Hush. No, of course not, said Susan. Oughtn't he to be told, said Lucy. Oh, surely not, said Susan. It would be too awful for him. Think how you'd feel if you were he. All all the same, I think he ought to know, said Lucy. But that moment they were interrupted. Um, Yeah, as you get on into the Chronicles of Narnia, he, he comes to know what Aslan did for him. He comes to know the reason for his sanctification here. Uh, anyway, then you notice they go to sleep. And then you notice as soon as they go to sleep, Aslan does this miraculous multipli- multiplying of the food to feed them. I hope that sounds familiar to you. And they make the, they're, they're at Care Paravel now. That's the castle. The next day, uh, af- after tea time, uh, they, 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 they end up at Care Paravel. By the way, you do know what time tea time is, right? And this is T-E-A, not T-E-E. <laughs> you do know what time tea time is in the, in the English world? Four o'clock. Four o'clock. Uh, for, for probably multiple reasons. One, you probably need some caffeine about that point. Uh, for me, I think tea time probably should be three o'clock. But three o'clock, four o'clock, sometime afternoon. So sometime after tea time, they, are, they arrive at Care Paravale. And, of course, Care Paravale is on the coast of Narnia. And, oh, the cry of the seagulls, have you heard it? Can you remember? Now I want you to see um, uh, the crowning of these four. So look at the paragraph that says, That evening after tea, the four children all managed to get down to the beach again and get their shoes and stockings off and fill the sand between their toes. But next day was more solemn. For then in the great hall of Caraparavale, that by the way, there's a castle, ruins of a castle in Northern Ireland today uh, that is um, the um, prototype in C.S. Lewis's mind for Caraparavale. So I had somebody send me a text a couple days ago and they said, didn't you say if you ever go to Ireland, go to Northern Ireland? I said, yes, I certainly did. If you ever go to Ireland, make sure you go to Northern Ireland. There's a lot of reasons I'm telling you that, but um, Ireland's a hot destination these days, but everybody just wants to go to the Republic of Ireland. But for a lot of reasons, if you go, go to Northern Ireland. Um, And you can actually go to the castle, 
the ruins of the castle that's the um, prototype in C.S. Lewis's mind for Care Paravale. <clears throat> anyway, so here they are. For then in the great hall of Care Paravale, that wonderful hall with the ivory roof and the west wall hung with peacock's feathers and the eastern door which looks toward the sea, in the presence of all their friends and to the sound of trumpets, Aslan solemnly crowned them and led them to the four thrones amid deafening shouts of long live King Peter, long live Queen Susan, long live King Edmund, long live Queen Lucy. Once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. Bear it well, sons of Adam, bear it well, daughters of Eve, said Aslan. Again, recognize, O Christian, your dignity. Uh, the Bible talks about our dignity. We will rule with Christ one day. Uh, keep looking. Uh, by the way, I hope you notice what's happening here. It's going to get really obvious in a minute. Um, they, they are turning into medieval monarchs. And again, you remember it says, so it's a daytime job. He is a medieval Renaissance scholar. So they're turning into medieval monarchs here in the medieval castle. It looks like the Middle Ages. It sounds like the Middle Ages. You can think, um, you can think about King Arthur and the Round Table. Uh, it's, they're turning into medieval monarchs. And through the eastern door, which was wide open, came the voices of the mermen and the mermaids swimming close to the shore and singing in honor of their new kings and queens. Um, remember, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that you heard the queen mention, um, the false queen of Narnia, the white witch, mentioned back at the beginning. This was the prophecy uh, about what would happen, how Narnia would be delivered when these four come to sit on the thrones of Care Paravel. So the children sat on their thrones and scepters were put into their hands, and they gave rewards and honors to all their friends, to Tumnus, the phone, remember him, and to the beavers and, and giant rumblebuffin, to the leopards and the good centaurs and the good dwarfs, and to the lion. Yeah, the bad creatures aren't here. And that night there was a great feast in Caraparavel and revelry and dancing and gold flashed and wine flowed and answering to the music inside, but stranger, sweeter, and more piercing came the music of the sea people. But amid all these rejoicing, Aslan himself quietly slipped away. Yeah, he's calling us into service. He's calling us to rule and reign. Remember the book of Genesis, uh, the, original, the original charge to Adam was to exercise dominion in creation. Um, yeah, we just prefer God to do it all himself, but remember your dignity, old Christian. Uh, anyway, Aslan quietly slips away, and when the kings and queens noticed that he wasn't there, they said nothing about it, for Mr. Beaver had warned them. He'll be coming and going, he said. He had said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. Some of you have got God put in a neat little box. And you've got him all figured out. And he's harmless. He's domesticated. He just does what you want him to do. He doesn't ever ask you to do something you don't want to do. Anyway, Aslan doesn't like being tied down. And, of course, he has other countries to attend to. 
We're grateful for that one. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. We're grateful for that one too. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Remember, he's not safe, but he's good. So, yeah, you can't trifle with Aslan. Um, anyway, so you hear at that point the story's nearly over. So what happens at this point is they rule and they reign in Narnia. Uh, it does really become kind of a medieval kingdom uh, with all the chivalry. Uh, you hear references to King Peter, the magnificent, Susan the Gentle, uh, King Edmund the Just, Queen Lucy the Valiant. So there's great joy. And anyway, at one point, they hear about a white stag. Now, what I need to tell you is, because you haven't read the rest of the books of Narnia yet, you learn elsewhere 15 years pass. This is a 15-year period when they're ruling. So um, if you're on page 84, um, yeah, about 15 years pass right here. And after 15 years of ruling and reigning in Narnia, um, they hear from Tumnus that there's a white stag. There's a white stag running through the forest. And they decide to go hunting the white stag. Now, um, you probably don't know a lot about white stags in your world. C.S. Lewis would say because you're not reading the right literature. You're not reading any medieval Renaissance literature. Uh, white stag, white stags, if captured, create, if captured, they, they, they will grant your wishes. But probably more importantly, particularly to C.S. Lewis, the medieval Renaissance scholar, in medieval Renaissance artwork and tapestries, white stags symbolize Christ in medieval Renaissance literature. Anyway, Tumnus says there's this white stag running around. So the four monarchs, four Pavinci children, decide they're going to go hunting the white stag. And this is going to bring an end to th this adventure in Narnia. Uh, you notice uh, by this point, because 15 years has passed, they're even talking like medieval monarchs. Fair consorts, let us now alight from our horses and follow this beast into the thicket, for in all my days I've never hunted, hunted an, a nobler quarry. Sir, even so let us do. So, yeah, they're talking weird at this point. Uh, they have turned into medieval uh, monarchs. Anyway, you'll see on page 185, they're out there um, looking for the white quarry, the white stag, but something grabs their attention. They see what um, they call a tree of iron. What is it? The lamppost. The lamppost. Remember the lamppost? They see a tree of iron. You're going to learn where the lamppost comes from, the magician's nephew. They see a tree of iron is what they're thinking because they, they, they don't come from a world. Uh, at this point, they've been here 15 years, and there's, there's no memory in them of their other life. It's just a mysterious past. So they don't remember gaslights and lampposts and, and early 20th century Edwardian England. They don't remember any of that stuff. So they see this tree of iron. By the way, you will learn later in... Um, Chronicles of Narnia. This this piece of Narnia where the lamppost is comes to be called um, Lantern's Waste. Because you don't need lanterns here. There's this strange, miraculous iron tree that has a light. So they, they call it Lantern's Waste. You don't need your lanterns here. 
Um, anyways, they see that. They think it's a strange device. Um, they, they say at the top of page 186, um, I, I know not how it is, but this lamp on the post worketh upon me strangely. Yeah, they're even speaking King James English now because they're medieval monarchs. Yeah, that lamp post worketh on them strangely because, again, it's bringing back some memories of before they were in Narnia. Um, King Edmund says, Madam, the like foreboding stirreth in my heart also. Anyway, so um, they're there wandering about, and you'll notice that all of a sudden, as they feel like there's another adventure ahead of them, says, so these kings and queens entered the thicket, and before they had gone a score of paces, they all remembered that the thing that they had seen was called a lamppost. As they're going through the thicket, the memory's coming back. They remember this thing that they had seen was called a lamppost, and before they had gone 20 more paces, they noticed that they were making their way through, not through branches, but through coats. And next moment, they all came stumbling out of a wardrobe door into the empty room, and they were no longer kings and queens in their hunting array, but just Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy in their old clothes. It was the same day and the same hour of the day on which they had gone into the wardrobe to hide now, how many years had passed in Narnia? Fifteen. Same day, same hour in earth time. Um, and they come tumbling out of the wardrobe. Miss and McGreedy and the visitors were still talking out in the hallway, the passage. But luckily, they never came into the empty room, so the children weren't caught. Now, I want you to look at how it ends. And all authors, I assume, I hope, all authors are very, very... Um, intentional about the way they choose to end, the, end, end their novels. And that would have been the very end of the story if it hadn't been that they felt they really must explain to the professor why four of the coats out of the wardrobe were missing. A couple things here. They, they, they feel like they really have to tell the professor about where they've been. Well, you'll learn more about that in The Magician's Nephew. You'll learn why they have to tell the professor. You'll learn who the professor was, is. You'll learn uh, what happened to him when he was a kid. Um, but also what I want you to notice, C.S. Lewis wants you to notice, they, they also want to tell the professor about why four coats are missing. They feel guilty because they had taken the coats. They didn't bring the coats back. They are missing. C.S. Lewis would want you to notice, wow, isn't it neat how Christian virtues can be developed in human beings. How Christian virtues can be developed in a child. I know some children that would never, ever feel guilty about taking the coats. And they just kind of hope the professor never finds out. It was them. But there's, there's a development of um, Christian virtue. Um, good literature, good literature should help us develop as Christians. Should help give us a moral compass should help us develop the sanctified life. Now, again, if your literature is not helping you develop a moral compass, C.S. Lewis would say, maybe you need to read a different kind of literature. But here are these four people. They, um, yeah, they feel a little guilty because the coats are missing, and it's their fault. Um, and the professor, who was a very remarkable man, yeah, you're going to get all the backstory about that professor. 
in the next one. Didn't tell them not to be silly or not to tell lies, but he believed the whole story. Well, you're going to learn why in Magician's Nephew. No, he said, I don't think it will be any good trying to go back through the wardrobe door to get the coats. You won't get into Narnia again. C.S. Lewis already knew his, he was writing other books of Narnia. Uh, he, he says, um, uh, you, you will get back there someday, uh, but you won't get back to Narnia again by that route, but you will get back someday. Uh, once a king in Narnia, remember hearing this one, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Now, I wonder how the professor knows that quotation. You'll find out he's been there as a little kid. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia, but don't go trying to use the same route twice. Yeah, sometimes you can't have the same spiritual experience twice. The Holy Spirit may want you to kind of have a different experience this time around. Don't keep trying to preserve that last experience like you're putting in a museum to go back and think about occasionally. Uh, Let the Holy Spirit give you some new experience. You, You can't always use the same route to get back into Narnia. Uh, but don't go trying to use that same route twice. Indeed, don't try Don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. And don't talk too much about it, even about your, among yourselves. And don't mention it to anyone else unless you find that they've had adventures of the same sort themselves. What's that? How will you know? Oh, you'll know all right. And sometimes if you're a Christian, you kind of know the other people that you're around. You kind of know if if there's a similar spirituality between you. Oh, you'll know, all right, odd things they say. Even their looks will let the secret out. Keep your eyes open. Bless me, what do they teach at these schools? What do they teach them at these schools? Um, And then the last paragraph. And that is the very end of the adventure of the wardrobe. But if the professor was right... It was only the beginning of the adventures of Narnia because uh, he had written some more by that point. He didn't know there were going to be seven, but he knew there was going to be more than this one um, at that point. So just a couple, I, I mean, hopefully a lot of biblical text have been popping into your mind. Um, now, again, just to summarize a little bit before you get out of here. It's not an allegory, so it doesn't mean everything in here relates to something symbolically in the Christian faith or the Christian story. It's not an allegory. He called it a supposal, but um, there's a lot of Christian images behind a lot of this story, and, and the more you're in the Christian faith, the more these Christian images will just jump off the page and, and slap you in the face. You can't miss them. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis hopes that you'll read these to children. Children will read these. So when they do start hearing or reading the Christian scriptures, it'll sound familiar to them. Uh, they will already have a relationship with some of those stories. They'll have a relationship knowing about someone who, 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 who died for the sake of others, who came back to life, who defeated the White Witch, who brought about the great new kingdom in Narnia. So that, those are the reasons for the Chronicles of Narnia. So hopefully a lot of biblical texts are coming uh, to your mind. Um, let me just share two with you. Have your Bible. Look at Luke 4. These are very familiar. Um, if you've been in the Christian faith a while, you could almost tell me what I'm getting ready to read. In Luke chapter 4, you, you, you find Jesus' inaugural address. Jesus' inaugural address, his inaugural sermon... 
in the city of Nazareth, his hometown, when he goes back, you, you see his inaugural address. Uh, he stands up there in the synagogue. They hand him the scroll because they're using a lectionary. They're using assigned readings for the day. They hand him the scroll. It's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And then in verse 18 of chapter 4 of Luke, he, he reads... He, he, he reads from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then the whole synagogue's fascinated. In verse 21, Jesus says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Um, you know, now maybe when you hear Jesus saying that, you might have some images of Aslan frenetically setting those statues free that had been captured and turned into stone by the uh, white witch. Jesus came to make you free. Jesus came to set you loose from all the garbage and bondage that's holding you back. Um, another one, and this is a text that I really like because it's so countercultural today. It's so not postmodern. Uh, it is it's so um, contrary to this age. It would, well, it'd be one of many reasons that would get Bibles banned from some settings. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, you know, this is, you know, there are people, I've, I've served with colleagues who wouldn't let me who didn't want the church to sing, sing things such as Onward Christian Soldiers, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, Battle Him, the Republic. For those of you that, were, that are Methodists you, and you've been around a while, you may remember that when our new hymnal was produced, which is not new anymore, it was produced in 1989, that when it was being um, created, word leaked out that Onward Christian Soldiers and the Battle Him, the Republic were going to be removed. As we try to sanitize, you know, the world around us, those two hymns are going to be removed. And uh, I'm glad it leaked out because the committee that was creating our new hymnal got literally thousands and thousands back in those days letters saying, "What are you doing?" You know. So if you'll notice in our United Methodist hymnal, you've got honored Christian soldiers. I had somebody, and I won't say which church. They were in another mainline church here in this city. They worshiped with us a while back. And when they went out of the sanctuary, they said, we had sung on with Christian soldiers. And they, they were really happy we'd sung on with Christian soldiers because they were well aware in their denomination, in their hymnal, there's no honor with Christian soldiers. But because um, um, that's militaristic or nationalistic or whatever. Um, and that same sort of spirit of this age and uh, that same sort of spirit this age would, would make problematic something such as Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. And again, a very familiar text if you've been in the faith a while. Chapter 6. I know some Christians, such as Warren Wiersbe, who's deceased now, uh, who, used, who uh, used to read this text daily in preparation for his, um, the day ahead of him. Anyway, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, put it on, uh, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, having above, above all taken the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Um, if you're a Christian, you're in a war. But the problem in our culture with a lot of Christians, they're in a war, but they're not in battle. They're not in battle. So that's the reality. C.S. Lewis knew that well because, again, um, he, he lived in two generations. He died two generations ago. So he knew that well. He knew how uh, he, the human, human life was created and, and the conditions of human life. So, uh, yeah, if you don't like images of warfare at all and you want to eradicate all images and thoughts of warfare, um, you have to get rid of texts like that, and you probably would be wanting to ban Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, from that. Um, anyway, so I'll leave you there. Let's pray together, and then um, next week, Magician's Nephew is a, it's a different type of chronicle. Um, you'll spend a big chunk of the Magician's Nephew in Edwardian England, but not all in Edwardian England. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for this time that we share. We give you thanks for the many ways that you work in our lives to grow us up, to grow us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you'll continue your work in our lives so that we'll never be satisfied with where we're at in our spiritual journey. But may we continue to grow as long as we're in this life, grow in service, grow in ministry, growing, grow in our love for you, our devotion to you, so that one day, too, we may receive those crowns, but God, we know that when we receive those crowns, we will, we will be quick to cast those crowns before you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Make sure you know everybody in the room. Make some new friends. Go in peace. Magician's nephew next week. <laughs>